0: I'm on the rise of a lifetime, I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here.
1: Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We welcome our viewing audience from wherever they may be around the world, and also the people who are in-house with us. Don K. Preston, we we are emailing all the churches uh, in the Valley, Utah, uh, inviting them to come. And um, let me review the contents with you, what just came up. Let's take a look at that, Merle. John K. Preston, better put my glasses on. Campus Church Presents A Discourse With. He's the president and founder of the Preterist Research Institute. Friday, September 11th, 7 to 9 p.m. Refreshments will be served Saturday, September 12th, 9 to 11 a.m. Our address is 137 West, 4640 South in Murray, Utah. Seating is limited. There's going to be... Uh, Dr. Preston will give a presentation, he'll do a Q&A, uh, everyone is welcome, friendly dialogue, please, no, no horrible things, and uh, all are welcome. Please invite your pastor as well to come, uh, whether your pastor is a partial preterist, a full preterist, a futurist, an millennialist, whatever it is. We also will be live streaming that, I think. And if we don't, it, at least the program will be available in our archives. So make note of that. We hope you'll join us. Thanks for running that, people behind in the cage. Uh, with that, how about a moment from the Word?
2: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts sang, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse
1: Okay, we've been browsing through the New Testament for passages that support what we've been calling subjective Christianity. And we've covered, we started with Romans, and we went through uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and tonight we're going to hit Galatians. What does Paul say in chapter 1 of Galatians? He says, chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I now please men? For if I yet pleased men, listen to this, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that's a remarkable passage. And let's see what Paul did when he was called into the ministry. You Ready? He says in Galatians 1 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathens, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. That means that he didn't go to a bunch of men and say, what should I do now? Oh, will you accept me in your group? Will you come and teach me of your philosophies and the way you see things? He says, I didn't confer with men. He goes on, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So it sounds like Paul cared about the leadership and they're the council of the apostles opinions and ideas and he didn't want to make a step without them no not at all he talked to Peter went and stayed with Peter after three years but he conversed with the Lord and uh, Paul did what he was called to do one of the biggest complaints against this ministry over the years was that when we came into Utah uh, we didn't seek the counsel of the other pastors I mean I've literally had pastors back in the day say, you should have come to us and counseled with us on how to do ministry here. And, uh, you know, they, they always had the, these accountability groups and, you know, I just don't see that in scripture. I don't see it. I see it by the spirit. I have brothers and sisters in Christ around me that I talk with all the time and, and talk about different things, but this, this set accountability thing, I, I don't know. Uh, This is a familiar verse. Consider it. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now think about this for a minute. If a person is justified before God, before God, individuals are justified before God by faith and not by works, there is absolutely no obligation for anyone to have to answer to another person because another person cannot know our faith. Another person cannot know what's in our heart, only God can. So if we are justified and saved by faith, That is where the relationship is. The relationship is not to other people and what they want us to do. If works were necessary, listen, if works were necessary for our salvation, I get authority. If works are necessary for salvation, I understand having people over us that we respond to, return and report to, go and talk to, counsel with, get direction from, take direction from. But if we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, there is no interpersonal relationship necessary. It's all between the individual and God. At verse 20 and 21, Paul adds emphasis to this subjective personal faith saying, I, listen to this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Nine times in that short, two short passages, Paul refers to himself, I or me. Nine times. That's very subjective. Five times he speaks of Jesus, and then in one of those times he says, Christ lives in me. If that's the case, that's the thing we're concerned about, you know? And when Christ is in people, we relate to each other in a great way, don't we? That's the beautiful thing about it. Subjective, personal, no man, no visible authority, Christ, you, Christ, me, Christ, Paul, you know, that's how it goes. Okay, when it comes to plain religion, plain worthiness, plain outward conformity, Paul plainly says in chapter 3, verse 1, he's talking to the Galatians, he says, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. This is all I want to ask you, he says. Received you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you get the spirit that's living in you? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Know what he's talking about there? Listen, the flesh of human beings is always depraved. Our flesh does not improve. We think it's improving. It's not. Uh, What improves is our spirit. In its dominance over our flesh. But if we were ever able to have like a microphone for the spirit and a microphone for the flesh, if you could ever put the microphone up to the flesh, you'd have to edit most of what it would say <laughs> because it's not good. It's like a heinous, bad creature, all right? We are not improving our flesh, okay? The spirit is dominating that flesh and that's how we live as Christians, right? So Paul says, listen, How were you regenerated? Was it by your flesh or was it by the Spirit? And if it was by the Spirit, are you now gonna go and perfect that flesh? That's called religion, folks. True Christians have all begun in the Spirit. Any Christian began in the Spirit, and this is where we wanna remain. The flesh material, the world, men, buildings, projects, tithes, blah, 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 are all of the flesh. The Spirit is what we look to increase in strength. The import of faith is reiterated in verse 14 of the same chapter, uh, Galatians 3, 14. Paul says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, again, through faith. Faith, faith, faith. No man can quantify, no man can qualify an individual's faith. You can, you can pretend you have faith in front of men and make it look like you're someone of, but no man knows whether you have faith or not. And so... Men will try to make us prove our faith, but our faith is all between him and uh, uh, between God and us. And that is where that subjectivity comes in. Ever attend a church where women are treated differently in Christ than men? Have you ever been to a church like that? Check this out. Galatians 3.26. Paul writes, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so right there, we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, that means baptized by the Spirit, by the way. And then he says, Neither is there Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the relationship. There's no priestly authority. There's no men who have authority because they're in Christ, but they have more authority in Christ than a woman has in Christ. Not so. A free person doesn't have more uh, connection to Christ than a, a, a slave. No, we are all the same in that. The women game thing is all tied to a misappropriation of the word and a definitely the culture of the day, applying it to ourselves as if it were scripture. It has nothing to do uh, with what is right. We are all one in Christ. Hey, let me ask you this. Last week we read that Paul said... Uh, that the apostles did not want to dominate over anyone. If you remember, if you were with us last week, he said, we're only here to increase your joy. We don't want to dominate you in any way. We just want to increase your joy. And then we know Jesus, when he came, he said, I came to give life more abundantly. Okay, right? So then Galatians 4, 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Papa, Father. Okay, so if we have the Spirit of Christ in us, we have Christ in us, right? And that is allows us to say, Papa to God, a very familiar, warm thing, Papa to God, right? And Jesus nor His apostles wanted to put people in bondage. Their whole thing was to bring more joy and to bring life more abundantly. Then shouldn't this be the call on our lives too? To Help people become more free and more liberated in Christ, rather than bring them into bondage. Read all of uh, what Paul says in chapter four about Hagar, the bondwoman, and Sarah, the free. Uh, and then turn to chapter five, verse one. It says, "Stand fast there. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled." Again, with the yoke of bondage. Now, I want you to remember that passage as we get into our message tonight because there is something going on in the body today, and it has gone on since the church began, which a yoke of bondage is being put back on people. It's constantly being tried to be put back on, okay? We're gonna talk about that. The liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Listen, anyone or anything that tries to take your liberty, tries to take your freedom as a believer, and is imposing their religion upon you, do not accept it. Do not accept anyone. Your pastor calls you in and says, listen, I really think you need to be doing, I really think I want you to do, no, no. You can say, hey, can I get your help? Fine, sure, I'd love to help you. Or we could really use this, but if it's, God wants me to tell you, or I really think you're not really measuring up, or I think you need to do more of this thing in order to be acceptable, and that kind of thing, run from it. Run immediately from it. Go to someone who doesn't do it. Don't accept it. Don't believe it. You are free in him. He gave his life for you to have liberty. He gave his life for you to have that freedom in him. Are we under any commandments as Christians? Are we? We certainly are. Listen to this. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, thank goodness, I just revealed a little too much of, that's not true, (laughs) availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but, you ready? Faith which works by love. Faith and love. Those are the commandments. We have those commandments. Faith and love. Two commandments, which again can only be judged by God and not men. Stay with me, then jump down to verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, For brethren, we have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does this love look like? This love, this fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And there should be a colon after that, I believe. And all the rest of the words are descriptions of what that love looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such, such there is no law. And then in the last chapter of Galatians we read, for if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone. That's what it says. That is very, very independent and subjective. And not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. And these are just touching on some of the passages from the book of Galatians and how they relate to this concept of subjective Christianity rather than an imposed Christian system that's objectively applied to us by people who have no right. Ephesians next week. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, we thank you. We love you. We uh, seek you. We need you. I had a good friend say, you are the answer. You are the answer for the babe, for the child, for the teen. Uh, You are the answer for the old man and old woman. You're the answer to the lonely, the proud, the rich. You are the answer. I love that. So Lord, please help us to seek you. Bless those who are struggling. Help our volunteers who do so much behind the scenes and help those who are seeking for truth. And Lord, bless my brother Mark. Help him to have the, sh- uh, the shackles fall from his heart and eyes. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, I'm gonna hit on something current. It's a current event tonight. I wanna help equip you against the insanity. Uh, it's, it's not that easy to understand. We have Roger in St. Louis, who's LDS waiting. We have Tyrone and Gilbert. Tell them to wait, operators. I'm just going to get through this, and then we'll go. We've been hearing a lot lately about a third temple. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Many are claiming that a temple is being built right now in Jerusalem. Uh, and the idea really is preposterous. Let me just get to right to the point. God's temple site is one site in the world. He doesn't have temples all over. It's one site. It's on Mount Mount Moriah. It's one place, the Temple Mount, and currently, it's occupied by Muslims. Currently, I say, for the past thousand years, it's been occupied by Muslims. It's today occupied by Muslims. So this third temple, what's going on with it? Apparently, a replica of the second temple is being built in a place called Mitzpah Jericho which is in the Judean Desert, 20 kilometers east of Jerusalem, near a highway that leads down to the Dead Sea. And apparently they are building this replica as a training facility for priests and Levites on how to conduct the temple rituals that are described in Leviticus, animal sacrifice. Some are suggesting that this is a step toward getting the priests ready to inhabit a third temple that will be built on Mount Moriah. A lot of people are thinking this is the third temple, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A couple of things about this. First of all, I want to know how did the Israelis know which priests get to go in and train? They have no genealogy as to who is really from the tribe of uh, uh, Levite and who comes from Aaron through Kohath and that whole line. They don't know. It was destroyed in the, when the temple Mount was destroyed in 70 AD. All the genealogies burned. They don't know who was who there. Now we could say, well, it's direct revelation. You can could, you could take it as far as you want. I'm just, that's one question I want. More importantly, why would a third temple need to be built? That's the real question I have. I'm gonna get right to the point. N.T. Wright, he's a scholar of our day. He says, quote, Jesus claimed to do and be what the temple was and did. Did you hear that? Jesus claimed to do and be what the temple was and did. If you understand that, then you would have to ask yourself, why are they building a third temple? What's the point? Now due to dispensationalist teachings and futurist craziness and the great deal of Judaizing that's going on in the body today, even in the Christian church. There's a prophetic teaching in the book of Ezekiel that got some strong legs when dispensationalism came about, which is the rapture and Jesus is coming out here in the future, all right? Uh, It makes perfect sense to me that the Jews alone would one, build a replica of the temple because they don't believe the Messiah has come and they believe the Ezekiel prophecy needs to be fulfilled and so if that's the case, it would make sense for them to build a replica. Add that, if they don't believe that and they're involved, it's a fantastic tourist trap and moneymaker. Can you imagine? There's a billion Christians, a lot of them futurists. How many are going to go to see this training temple? So it's tremendous for um, tourism and travel, etc. I'm sorry. But all that aside, let's, let's, let's quickly examine the notion of a third temple. Ezekiel's ministry closes with a vision that he has of a new temple, okay? And it occupies the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Fourteen years after the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, in the 25th year of his own exile, Ezekiel is given an assurance that in the course of time, there would be another temple in which the purposes of God would be perfectly fulfilled, okay? Uh, It was Ezra's temple, which was destroyed by the Romans 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ, and for the last 2,000 years, there's been no temple in Jerusalem because the site, as I said, has not been available. At the time of Ezekiel's closing vision, when Ezekiel had it, there was no temple, There is no priesthood, there is no monarchy in Jerusalem. None of those things were available to them. Who brought a temple? Who said this temple uh, will be destroyed and in three days I will raise it up? Jesus said that about himself. Who brought priesthood? Hebrews clearly teaches that he is our high priest. Who brought a monarchy? It's Jesus who sits on the right hand of God overseeing his uh, kingdom. So Ezekiel's vision, long story short, is simply saying, look, there's a temple that's coming and he was speaking of Christ Jesus. Here's, I'm just gonna jump to the whole conclusion. For a third temple to play a role, then what we would have to say is, Christ and what he did and who he represents would have to be annulled for them to reenact sacrificing animals and doing this again. And all of Christ's work would have to take like, not a backseat, it would have to be erased. And Hebrews perfectly makes it clear that what Christ did is unshakable and it's not going anywhere again. Now here's the danger, and then we're gonna go open up the phones. More and more, people buy into this idea that a third temple needs to be built and that all of this stuff is going to happen, Christians are starting to embrace this idea that they maybe should start to adhere to the law. And so circumcision, I mean, there's a passage in Ezekiel's uh, vision that says, listen, unless you're circumcised, you're not getting in. So I could see Christians who are going to become Judaizers and start saying, we better circumcise each other. That's important. Dietary laws will probably come back dress codes will come back, and we're going to see people falling under the law, which the New Testament clearly, clearly states, it's done. It's over. He's the author and finisher of the faith. So I counsel Christians to don't paper in London called The Christian. It was owned by um, Billy Graham, and Billy Graham has done so much good work And and everything else. But in 1967, the Christian had banner headlines, and in the headlines, it said, Erection of Jerusalem Temple imminent. And then in the story, the byline to the article said, Israeli government representatives have ordered 60,000 tons of the finest Bedford stone in Bedford, Indiana, to be used in the erection of the Jerusalem Temple. End quote. The article said, 500 rail card loads of stone from Bedford, considered to be among the finest building stone in the world, is being freighted, pre-cut to exact specifications, and one consignment has already been dispatched to Israel. Shipments are being handled by Pier 26 in New York. When they give little details like that, it's hilarious to me. So, uh, I mean, so they report that all of this is going on, and... um, Get ready, they're saying that the pillars have been made, they've been cast in bronze. This was in 1967. Uh, The third temple, it says, quote, must be built to fulfill biblical prophecy. The church as God's spiritual temple during the present time must give way to a material temple in the next movements of God's plan for Israel and the nation, the article said. Back in 67, they're saying this. Okay, Six six weeks later, There's this little article in the Christian magazine, in the Christian newspaper, this is what it said. It's from the Jewish ambassador to London. Quote, allow me to refer to a story appearing in the recent issue of your publication concerning the shipping of stones from the USA for the alleged purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. I would like to point out that this story is an absolute and complete fabrication in all its aspects. There are no plans for the rebuilding of the temple. No shipments for such a purpose has been made from the USA or elsewhere. And the matter has not been considered either in secrecy, as the report alleges, or openly. In view of the fact that the temple area is now occupied by shrines of other faiths, both Christian and Muslim, and we would never touch these, the entire story must be considered an invention. Okay, it's been going on for a long time. Graham bought into it too. Chuck Smith, my mentor. Uh, uh, he bought into it big time. But they've been buying in and buying in and perpetrating. And my whole point is we be all over the LDS for their myths. We mock them for St. Joseph translated with a stone and a hat. We mock them for believing that they have the Ark of the Covenant and the Salt Lake Temple. We mock them for their myths, but we won't look at our own. This is a myth. It's a myth. And Jesus, because Jesus Christ is our everything, including our temple. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have Roger in St. Louis. We have Tyrone and Gilbert. We have Tom in Carthage. And do we have a spot? Did I have say spot? We have a spot, we'll be right back and we'll take those calls.
0: Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are, in the end, between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to
3: love.
1: Okay, welcome back. We're going to go to Roger in St. Louis, who's LDS. Roger, you are on heart of the matter.
4: Sean, how are you doing, my friend?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
4: I'm doing all right. Hey, so I am LDS, uh, so hopefully we can we can get along a little bit, right? Because I do respect you. I respect your viewpoint. Uh, I just vehemently disagree uh, with some of the things you said. It's interesting you're talking about the temples. Uh, we could both agree. I guess we we can't, but the pro- is being prophesied. Uh, or it was also prophesied to be an important part of the Lord's work in the last days before the second coming of the Lord, and we could talk about the great millennium, but certainly if you look at some of the verses, you know, in Revelations and Isaiah, Malachi, Ezekiel, would probably support a temple restoration from an LDS point of view. Uh, first off, and this is not what I called in to talk about because I was listening while I was on the line, but since you, since it was what you were kind of talking about a little bit, from an LDS point of view, explain, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll... Respond accordingly, but explain why the LDS restoration point of view when it comes to temples is not biblical
1: uh, the 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 number of responses we don't have a long enough show uh, okay
4: well, well here let me give you let me give you I mean revelation seven one five therefore they' are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence
1: who is revelation written to Roger?
4: Well, I mean, give me your interpretation of that verse is what I'm at. I mean, like yeah. I said, this is not initially well, what I want to talk about, but I think it's interesting. Well, uh, I'm just,
1: I just want to ask you the question. You, you quoted from a passage of Scripture, and, you, and you're applying it to the LDS views or your views, but who was Revelation written to? That's the first question, and it's part of my interpretation of what the passage means. Who was okay. it written to? Well, it
4: was re- well, I mean, okay, so it was written by John
1: written by yeah who was it written to?
4: That's a good question. I mean some modern scholars I mean it, it it depends. Well, all
1: right, let's get to the question you have. It was written to the seven churches in Asia at that time in preparation for his coming. And uh, in the Greek, it says at the beginning three t- four times, at the end three times, and all through he's coming quickly, he's coming quickly. The word in the Greek means immediately. And it was a book that was written, uh, if you look at the context of Revelation, it was written certainly pre-70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. It's also very, very apocryphal in nature. Uh, Luther didn't even think it should be along in the New Testament so there's so much to talk about and even the LDS temple stuff I mean we could go into origins we could go into what the temple mount we could go into where the temple has always been versus where the LDS have put temple I mean it's just endless so why don't we just talk about the one the reason that you did call
4: gotcha okay well and and like I'm said, i not a biblical scholar I've read the Bible and I you know I converted to Christianity as an atheist and later became uh, Mormon but you know, there there are some definite verses. You know, we could talk about, but okay. The reason I want to talk, the reason I called in, because I have listened occasionally, but I know, uh, obviously, when speaking about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, I want to hear. And there's a you know, a million different theories. You could talk about the Spaulding manuscript, which from my studying seems to have been debunked. Uh, you've got writings from was it Adam Smith or one of the, some of the last name Smith. The uh, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but they, they've had all these theories on how Joseph Smith could come up with this 500-plus page book that we call the Book of Mormon that's got so much into it. My question is, and I know it's hard to include it in just a few minutes or in a few seconds, but what is your best explanation for how Joseph came up with the Book of Mormon the way he did?
1: Uh, My best explanation is that Joseph Smith was perhaps one of the great religious synthesizers uh, to walk on the face of the earth. He had a great mind he could pull and extrapolate and expound upon a number of factors that were present in his life, present in the newspapers, uh, current themes that were going on. He also uh, uh, had a vivid imagination for warfare and things. So I think that in combination with Oliver Cowdery and I think a view of the Hebrews certainly uh, uh, played a role in the uh, uh, creation of the Book of Mormon I think the anachronisms of the Book of Mormon uh, prove the book to be an utter fail, and if you look at the anachronisms, um, you might discover that yourself, you might not but
4: well, and, uh, well, I, well, I think it 's interesting because you know my bachelor 's is in ancient history i 'm twenty two I just graduated from college I plan on going into Egyptology because of that, but when I read the Book of Mormon, I, I, I disagree you know there 's so much complexity he couldn 't have made it up. You could talk about chiasmus that's written throughout the you know you look at king Benjamin's speech and you say there is no way he came up with this out of the top of his head because the writing itself is so magnificently complex
1: actually the writing itself is not complex it's redundant and if you make a comparison between the writing of the book of mormon and the clarity and and uh and in the clearness of the bible i mean great study i think i i hear what you're saying i know you believe these things but uh I just—we have done. I think there are—I don't know—maybe twenty-four shows on the Book of Mormon, and they're all on the archives. And it, we went through all of this uh, with a fine-tooth comb, Roger. And I think if you went and you watched those shows and then you called with your questions after having seen them, I think that we would have a very different conversation.
4: Okay. Well, and so, so I'll let you go. But I, and like I said, I don't.
1: Did I lose you? all right my friend I did not hang up on him those days are gone I hope let's go to Tyrone in Gilbert Arizona Tyrone you're on Heart of the Matter oh,
5: how are you doing Sean
1: hey good how are you
5: good um, I have a question for you yeah I, I watch your show religiously you are my church I religiously watch West you Gary. every week and I've learned a lot watching this show and your Sola Scriptura yeah um, this kind of goes hand-in-hand with your soul Scripture with um, the relevance of the Old Testament in regards to the New Testament. Um, yeah. Why is the Old Testament relevant? And one of the questions I have, if God's the creator of everything, why are there passages in the Bible about bloodlines? Why would that be so significant? Uh-huh. That, that seemed like it would be trivial to God.
1: Uh, I'm sorry, uh, What bloodlines, Blood oh, okay. Uh, really quickly, Tyrone, uh, first of all, the relevance of the Old Testament, um, it, it's really, really uh, important to understand it because when you read the New, you understand what Peter and Paul and James and John and Jesus were talking about when they would teach because they were talking, speaking from when the New Testament says scripture or study the scripture or uh, the, the word of God is more powerful than a 2 edged sword, It was talking about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament when they were saying those things. And so the pictures and types that are in the Old Testament through everything they went through are really, really significant in both pointing to who the Messiah would be and all the prophecies that were given. And in addition, they give us us great lessons and they give us all those things that help us see who Christ was. Your question about the bloodlines is important. In the Old Testament, they had a temple and in that temple, there, was a pre- there were priests, Aaronic priests, and they had to be of a certain line. And so bloodlines were exceptionally important because that's the way they determined who came from who as a means to be in the uh, temple to do the work, but also the bloodline of Christ, the Messiah, had to come through David. And so the- they are constantly given their genealogies to show who comes from where, so that they were certain that God, they were doing it God's way and having only the right people in those places and, that, and the way they would be able to discern who the Messiah was. And so those are were, those were the purposes of the bloodlines then. Now, that being said, in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, we said this earlier, those genealogies were burned, wiped out. So we don't have those bloodlines anymore, it's done. Did you fall asleep?
5: No, I'm still
1: here. Alright. Yeah. So that's it. Well,
5: one, one other question I have. Um, yeah. The reason I questioned uh, some of the things in the Old Testament, because uh, if people believe that Jesus was God the flesh, yeah. and I read certain passages in the Bible, like um, Deuteronomy 22 to two 1, um, about stoning, Yeah. it seems like that was not the nature of Jesus but it seemed like it was the nature of the God in the Old Testament. I see. Uh, And it's confusing, and and a lot of times when you're talking to atheists or agnostics, they bring up a lot of things in the Old Testament, and I don't have answers for that.
1: Well, let me Uh, try to help you with that one instance. God is holy, He is good, He is light, and he he, He cannot differ from that. That's what He is, okay? And so in order for us to get to him, we have to be holy. And so he had his law in the Old Testament. And he said, listen, obey things and be holy and you'll be okay. Disobey and you feel my wrath. And it was a picture and type to prepare us for the grace that Christ would give us because the law would never save us. And so God says, here's my 10 commandments and I'm here to help you in this. But the children of Israel were failing and they were, had, to, you had to stone for certain sins because that's holiness. If you commit a sin, you've gotta pay the price, right? So when Christ comes along, he takes the law, he lives it perfectly, he sheds his blood and he gives us grace now. So we wouldn't understand the grace that Christ came and gave us if we didn't understand his holiness and the law. So that's the purpose of that Old Testament and how it plays into our understanding. Now I understand, but from a humanist perspective, I understand like, oh gosh, that's horrible. And some of those things are terrible to read. But God is God, he is holy, and he is bringing about his will through all these pictures and types. And uh, in essence, we really deserve what was going on in, those, in the Old Testament. It's by Christ that we've escaped that punishment is kind of the way to see it. Atheists have a hard time with that, but that's how I would teach it.
5: Well, you answered that question. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Tyrone, thanks for watching. Oh, thank you. God bless, bye-bye. Right. We're going to Tom in Carthage, Missouri. I gotta study up on my acronyms for states. That looks like Montana. Tom, are you from Missouri or Montana?
3: Song. I'm, I'm actually from Missouri, yes.
1: And do you say Missouri or Missouri? Missouri. Missouri? <laughs> awesome.
3: <laughs> yes, I've been trying to get a hold of you for almost a year and a half now. Me and a friend of mine, we've been watching uh, some of your shows on YouTube and uh, I uh, started watching uh, some of your stuff on, uh, on Revelation and, uh, oh, what do you call that stuff? Anyway, sorry. Yeah, um, so I've been watching that and your uh, deal on uh, baptism oh. and how that applies to us today and everything, you know? Yeah. Um, unfortunately for you, buddy, I don't have a question. Um, <laughs> you actually—
1: You've been sushi for me for a year and a half, and you don't have a question? Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, all right let me ask you a question yes what church you go to
3: i don't go to any church
1: good what what bible do you read
3: i read the king james version bible
1: yeah and yeah. Uh, how long have you been in in relationship with god
3: since i was five
1: wow in
3: that's, and really, and out.
1: that's great to hear that like you've been in that you have your bible and you don't go to church why don't you go to church
3: well, Sean, here's the thing. When I was when I was five, I started going to a uh, a church that preached hell, damnation, hellfire. Christian, you know, um, Baptist church is what I was raised up in for several years. Say no and, more. Uh, no more. Um, <laughs> everything. Everybody around here, they they preach. You know that uh, by God, if you don't pay your tithes then you don't belong to our church and I guess. you know and I just don't I just don't agree with that good and <laughs> yeah so but uh, the the stuff that you did on uh, how Revelation you know was written to the Jews back then and not to us I think is spot-on I mean I've been thinking about that a lot and I even brought it up to somebody before. I said, "What if we're just waiting on the second coming of Christ, and he's already came, you know, <laughs> because the Jews are waiting on the first coming, and we're still waiting on the second coming. Yeah, hello, already happened. Yeah, you know and and you know, when you start asking yourself the questions of of who, you know the revelation was uh, written to, You know, it's basic third grade English when you start to think about it. You put in who, what, when, where, and how. You know, and when you start putting that in, then you can realize what Revelation is really talking about, whereas everybody else wants to make it a futuristic thing, and it's not.
1: They certainly do. Hey, listen, Tom, uh, you know, you've made me think of something. I'm just going to address it really quickly while you're on the phone. I cannot tell you folks, and I don't know how, who's going to see this, but I can't tell you how many people I meet who were raised in a Christian family and have left Christianity because their parents or their pastor or their church has raised them with hell, fire, damnation. You better, you better, you better. And by the time they become thinking adults most of, I mean, a lot of them are just flying the, I mean, there's really no difference between what's happening with the LDS and the people who are raised in fundamentalist, hardcore, mean-spirited, God hates fags type of church. I mean, when are we gonna grow up? Realize God is love. He wants to redeem us. He's a good guy. Jesus was nice and we love him. When are we gonna get back to that and stop it? So I really appreciate you bringing that out in my mind, Tom. By the way, okay. did you know Joseph Smith of the Mormon Church was shot in Carthage, Missouri?
3: No, he was shot in Carthage, Illinois.
1: Well, that's what I get for trying to do a show about Mormonism. <laughs> even more important, for reading. Oh, <laughs> my Carthage, my research staff put that on my screen right here. Yeah, and I, I didn't even think it, I just read it. Oh boy.
3: It's Carthage, Illinois. There
1: you go. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate it.
3: Sure. that's all right.
1: All right, my brother. Take care.
3: Don, I appreciate you.
1: You too. Bye bye. Bye. We're going to Jason in Ontario, Canada. Jason on Ont- in Ontario, Canada. You're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Hi. Um,
1: I've are you? A couple of calls. Party? Are, are you there? Yeah. Hello. You're on the air, Jason. Oh hi. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um I just got a couple of comments and stuff um
2: it's interesting that like on Sunday my uh, pastor got talking about very like uh, his topic and a lot of it was pretty pretty close to what you've been talking about the last couple of weeks and uh, he was using uh, matthew twenty three as his main and there was a couple other places too but um you know talking about uh in Matthew twenty three, he's talking about um, like the scribes and Pharisees and stuff, how they sit on Moses' seat, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. In verse four, it says, um, "For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." And then later on, he talks about um, in verse thirteen, it, it says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men." For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And, um, he used that to say that, um, like, uh, I forget where it is, but, um, it's either Jesus or Paul says that, um, you know, the, cr- the cross is foolishness and it's a stumbling block and stuff like that. And my pastor had said that, you know, and it makes a lot of sense that if, if people can't come to Christ of the cross that's one thing that's you know it, it happens but if people aren't coming to Christ because of the people and because of their rules and their regulations and their this is and that's and everything else then there's a problem because that's not what we are supposed to do to one another we're not only not only are we not going in ourselves but we're preventing people from going in for seeking
4: right that sort of thing
2: yeah, and uh, then he, he says, and he said this many times. This quote: he goes that he he, uh, he goes, uh, Scripture was never meant to be a magnifying glass to scrutinize and pick awesome. apart other people. It awesome. was meant to be a mirror to reflect our own faults to ourselves.
1: Awesome. That sounds like and a then, great pastor.
2: Like, yeah, yeah, he's really, in, <laughs>
1: yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, it
2: it makes me also think of. Um, when Jesus talks about the Pharisee tax collector in the temple, the Pharisees, like, oh, you know, thank you, God, for, not, for that, I'm not like this tax collector and this, that, and everything else, and the tax collector's like, oh, you know, I'm screwed up, you know, I need help, save me type of thing, and it, there's a lot of people out there the exact same way. They're like, oh, thank you that I'm not, you know, this crack addict or this prostitute or what this that or whatever else there's, there's a lot of it just, yeah and it's really friggin obnoxious but um another another thing too that kind of ties in a little that he had talked about quite a few months ago is that he knew, I don't know how he knows this pa- other pastor but and I'm sure there's a lot of them out there in the same boat but he was this um, his pastor went through the schooling and you know, he was a pastor for, I don't know how many years or decades or whatever, but um, he was a pastor for years and then finally gave his life to Christ. Oh, yeah. It's just like, how does, how does that make sense that the leader of a church who's supposed to be the shepherd, you know, supposed to, you know, guide people to Christ type of thing to kind of teach and, you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. How, how is it that like, that
1: doesn't make sense? It's, it happens. It happens, it Jason. Happens. Yeah. I really appreciate your call, my brother. Thanks for watching out there in Ontario, Canada. Yeah, and Isn't I, that by Florida? I'm just looking at what my operators are telling me. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah.
2: Sorry. Thanks.
1: Thanks, my brother. God bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we got a question here. Uh, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, in Matthew 12, 31, 33, Jesus says, Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever shall speak of the word against the Son of Man, it shall be given him. Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Uh, Done some time, uh, spent some time visiting people in mental hospitals. uh, And one of the things that really plagues a lot of believers is that they have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of uh, theologians say, in context, what Jesus was saying is, these Pharisees have said, I have cast out devils by the power of the devil, and they are guilty of this sin. I think that's a, really a sophomoric, ridiculous answer to that. I, I just have a really hard time believing that that is it. I, I realize the context but I see it differently. If you turn to uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 7, it says this. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. You see what he's done there? He's, he's juxtaposed belief with disobedience, meaning that belief... Is the good thing being an unbelief is the disobedience so keep that in mind who draws people to Jesus the Holy Spirit okay what does it prompt people to do believe in Jesus what sin is unforgivable here and in the world to come unbelief Is unbelief unforgivable? Yes. When can unbelief be forgiven? When a person believes, whether in this world or in the world to come. The unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says in John, the Holy Spirit's job is to bring people to Christ. Bring people to Christ. To blaspheme that is to say, I don't believe you. I, knock I don't believe you're drawing to me, and so therefore that is unforgivable here or there as long as you maintain that position in your heart. I believe when someone changes that position, whether here or in the world to come, the sin is forgiven. But as long as the unbelief is there and they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it is not. Now, not everyone would agree with that, but that is how I, I we have a better study on it, but that's off the top of my head. Okay, really quickly, Seth or Merle, let's see if we can do this. Uh, talk to a person today, I, I love and miss the LDS plan of salvation. I'm going to see if I can remember this. Okay, really quickly. Uh, this is a cloud, and it's a pre-existence. This is the LDS plan of salvation. Can you bring it up? Okay, and this is a spirit person, and there's billions of them. And this is, and this is Heavenly Father. That's a beard, long hair there's his robe. Okay. And in the preexistence, this is what the LDS person says who's converted to Christianity. I love the plan of salvation. Can you see it? Okay. And so the preexistence, it's we were spirits and we looked at God and he had a body of flesh and bone. And we said, we wanted one too. And so God said, okay, I'll make a world for you and you can go down there, and you can get it. And so we came down, we're born on this world, and we were given a physical body too, and God put a veil of forgetfulness over us, and we couldn't remember where we came from. And so we live our life, and we live our life, and then we do different things, and if we do bad things, Jesus came for us, and he paid for sin, and if you believe on him, then you can be forgiven of sin, and when you die, then you're going to go through the judgment and you're going to enter into one of three kingdoms, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, or the telestial kingdom, and people who fight against the church, like Richard Dutcher, no, just kidding, like me, uh, you go to outer darkness, okay, O-D. So I I hope you can see that, uh, maybe on your screens at home you can, on this it might be a little tough. So that is the LDS plan of salvation. So what is the Christian plan of salvation? I'm going to use a darker marker. I'm going to make this really quick. Here it is. We were all created, body, soul, spirit, okay? And that was Adam and Eve in the garden. And we had relationship with God. Adam and Eve were told to multiply and replenish the earth. They had animals and they could have looked at the animals doing the deed. If they didn't know, they had a relationship with God, they could have said, God, how do we do this? We don't know. Or they may have known. Whatever it was, God says, do this. And he said, but don't eat of the tree. They ate of the tree, sin came in. Now, when God created Adam and Eve, he blew his breath, his pneuma, into the clay body that he created, and man became a living soul, suke mind, will, and emotion, okay? So, that, this is Adam, Prior to falling, he and Eve have a body, they have a soul, and they have a spirit, okay? But when they sinned, they were cut off from God, and they no longer had a spiritual access to him. God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. But when Adam ate of the fruit, he didn't die. He lived another 930 years. What died? He died spiritually. This was cut off from him. And so, all of us live down here as unregenerated people. We live in our body and we live by our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. But we don't have a spiritual nature, and this is why Jesus said, you must be born again. You have to be born again in order to understand this part of your makeup, which right now is dead in you. Okay. So we go about, you know, and we can do negative things and we can do positive things in our body. The negative things, we have sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the positive things, we have sports and nutrition and all the positive things people do. And then in our mind, will, and emotion, we have positive things that we can do. We have education and we have careers and we have hobbies and we have uh, family and our mind, will, and emotion. In the negative, it can be involved in, in whatever the mind, will, and emotion does that is negative you know, all kinds of crime and gangsters and whatever it is, okay? So, and, and we're all down though, but look at everybody here, whether they're doing good in their body and in their soul or whether they're doing bad in their body and their soul, we're still all spiritually dead, okay? So Jesus comes and he puts a doorway here and he shines a light down into this world. And he says, look, look at me. And when we look at him, Jesus, this is the doorway, and we are born again, as he said, we are spiritually regenerated, okay? So now we are operating on all three parts of our makeup, three in one. Get that? Tied to the Trinity. How are we made in God's image? Mind, will, emot- I mean, body, soul, spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the three in one deal. Okay, so then this is regeneration. Is this the plan of salvation for the Christian? Is it over? It's not over yet. Because then when you get here, we're now living in this area. And, and if you go to the Beatitudes, it's a really fascinating study. But when you come here, this is, a, this is all about growing in the Spirit. This is about growing in love. This is about learning to live by the Spirit now, not by the flesh. And so we're as Christians, we're here and we're trying to live by the spirit, but we dip back down into here and get messed up and we come back up in here and we have this whole thing going on. And Paul talks about, listen, you know, with my spirit, I'm serving God, but with my flesh, I'm serving sin. There's a war going on. And so the plan of salvation for a Christian is we've been dead in sin. We see Christ. We are spiritually born again. We enter in relationship with God by the Spirit, and we let Him slowly overcome this part of our lives. And, and um, I think it's not as fanciful, maybe, as the LDS Plan of Salvation, but I think it is certainly more biblical, and uh, it speaks to me. One last question. Do you think the LDS Church members feel or find guidance via the Spirit of God according to your view of subjective Christianity? If so, why? If, I think LDS people and and Muslims and uh, uh, even atheists and Buddhists all have guidance of the Spirit of God. He loves uh, the people on this earth. And he doesn't, I mean, uh, Matt Slick differs with me, says God doesn't even, has no idea of who those other people are. But I believe that he is aware of all things and he is leading all people and he's drawing all people to him. So, whether they're LDS or not, and I know some LDS people who are led by the Spirit, and they're very loving, and that's the sign, the love that you have, the faith in Christ that moves you to love. So, of course, they're, I don't agree with their doctrine, but in terms of, do I think an LDS person can be led by the Spirit as easily as any, anybody else? Now, is the Holy Spirit dwelling within them? In some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in some Baptists? In some Baptists, yes. In some Baptists, no. Catholics, some yes, some not, on and on. It's just the individual subjective experience. So I do believe it could apply to any LDS person who has had that relationship with him. Next week we're gonna continue on with something. We'll see you then.
0: I'm on a ride. Going no. The dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start